Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. When the Philippines fell to the Japanese in the spring of 1942, tens of thousands of American and Filipino troops became prisoners of war. Approximately one in three of the Americans did not survive captivity. Their treatment by their captors and their limited access to medical care and supplies is often highlighted by historians. Today, we welcome Andy Watson to the podcast to discuss this in more depth and to share the experiences of U.S. Army medical personnel who were prisoners of war in the Philippines. Mr. Watson currently serves as the chief of the U.S. Army Medical Department's Center of History and Heritage. Welcome, sir, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. To start us off with, could you outline how the Army's medical services were set up in the Philippines in late 1941? Sure. To start off, uh, posting in the Philippines for a a lot of soldiers was uh, uh, sought after. And uh, so the medical department was no different. They uh, were excited to serve in a a tropical and exotic, but also fairly modern setting. So to begin with, when people think about a posting in the Philippines, it's, it's not all the jungle to begin with. When they are stationed in the Philippines, there are six full hospitals for each of the posts that are in the Philippines. They have a fair number of uh, staff members for each of these hospitals. Supply routes keep them uh, with a, a fair amount of equipment. And at the close of 1941, there are 247 medical department officers. There are 717 enlisted members and an additional 572 medical department Philippine scouts, all working uh, within the field of Army medicine. So it's a, uh, a fairly robust organization. Now, I think you've already addressed this a little bit, but sometimes when historians discuss the Philippines prior to the outbreak of World War II, there's a sense that maybe in the 1920s and 30s, it was a place to put mediocre officers. And I think that's debatable, but I've never heard this criticism about the Army's medical officers, unless maybe it was coming from their Navy counterparts. So what is your assessment of the quality of the Army's medical officers on the eve of the war in the Philippines? That's uh, that's an interesting theory. I, I think that is debatable because uh, two five-star generals did serve in the Philippines during the 20s and the 30s, both Eisenhower and MacArthur. So, but uh, I, I will go to the second piece of that uh, of that question. I don't know that I would characterize the officers as mediocre from the medical department. I think that they had good leadership. the The senior medical person was uh, a colonel named Wib W I B B. Cooper, I don't know what the WIB is short for or uh, if it's a nickname, but uh, WIB Cooper had served in World War I. Uh, he had received a Distinguished Service Medal for running a, a very large hospital in France. He had wartime experience. Not every medical person did have wartime experience from World War I, but they were all uh, knowledgeable about, arm- about medicine. And uh, so they did have the capability to treat people and to uh, overcome you know, medical obstacles and things like that. So they were all medically trained, even if they didn't have wartime experience. So I would say that uh, their status was capable, if not tested. And how do they respond to the Japanese invasion? 
there are a variety of ways. Those initial hospitals that I mentioned, uh, where they are uh, basically uh, cantonment and garrison areas, those places are attacked and, and bombed uh, in the initial attacks on the Philippines. So rather than staying at those uh, posts and in the cities, basically, U.S. forces move to where it's harder to find them. And they do move to the, the jungles and more rural areas. And uh, two field hospitals are set up in the jungle to provide care for these soldiers who are uh, fighting the Japanese during the invasion. And these hospitals are also kind of on the move, but they are in the jungle. So there are all kinds of problems that come along with that. Medical personnel are, are trying to support combat troops through the treatment of those injuries. But uh, there are also non-combat injuries that they need to to treat people for. And malaria is becoming a, a major problem for those forces because of the shortage of uh, malaria prophylactics and drugs that would stop it. Uh, additionally, malaria, uh, excuse me, malnutrition becomes a problem because the force is cut off from supplies and they go from rations to half rations, quarter rations, and to foraging within those rural areas. And in fact, veterinary personnel that are with the Army oversee uh, the slaughtering of not only uh, uh, local water buffaloes, but also horses and mules because the food situation becomes so dire. Although not trained specifically for that, they do have medical training and dental uh, personnel do not stick to their specialization, but uh, also assist in emergency surgeries and uh, other medical uh, uh, treatments that they could uh, assist with in these combat situations. Bataan surrenders in April of 1942. The Bataan Death March follows. What do we know about the physical condition of the surrender troops before and then during the Death March? Well, before I alluded to this a little bit already, they are already suffering from malaria and uh, vast Numbers of them are, are, are having, uh, you know, fevers and, and other symptoms from malaria, as well as uh, the malnutrition that I mentioned, but also physical uh, and mental fatigue from fighting all the time and uh, from being on the move and, and trying to maneuver uh, as you're running out of supplies and, and as the, uh, the invading force is pushing you back. They're also suffering from dysentery and fevers. Clean water is of utmost importance. And in a jungle environment, uh, uh, you need a lot of water to keep your body going and, and, and keep it clean. But uh, there's also the food that they are receiving is lacking nutrients. And that's going to uh, continually weigh on them as well as uh, in future, future situations they're going to face. And in addition to all that, there are people recovering and trying to recover from battle wounds and from surgery that they've had. So uh, they're, they're trying to hold out, but uh, they're facing a lot of these obstacles. In May 1942, Corregidor surrenders. And by this point, POWs have been in camps throughout the Philippines already. What role do the medical personnel play in these camps? And what kind of medical care and supplies are available to them? Medical personnel, they're still going to try to provide care. Uh, surgical cases are, are pretty grim. They 
they're not going to receive a lot of recovery time. The, the, the physicians that perform surgeries oftentimes are, are not allowed to treat American patients unless they uh, are at the uh, last, absolute last of the list. Uh, medical personnel are treating uh, Japanese soldiers and sometimes would work alongside Japanese physicians. And it was a precarious relationship to try to uh, treat your patients, to try to find out how you can perform surgery or, or make sure they receive definitely needed medicines. So uh, there is that surgical aspect. They're not going to receive the tools. Uh, they may have permission to treat. They may not. It's depending upon uh, which commander is there. In a lot of cases, it's, it's no treatment. Uh, they're not receiving the medicine, so they have to try to coerce and, and try to basically beg, borrow, or steal medicines to treat their patients. And there is the aspect of also present, preventing uh, diseases that are going to be in those uh, POW camps and trying to enforce sanitary measures, trying to get clean water, trying to stop vectors such as flies and mosquitoes that just spread disease uh, and keeping those places as sanitary as they can. I think it was a, a difficult task. Basic items that doctors might use that we think about like scalpels and tractors and forceps and things like that, since they don't have permission to use them, since they don't have access, in some cases, those have to be made out of items uh, in camp. Uh, so there are examples of uh, bamboo uh, forceps or uh, a tin can lid that has been shined up to use it as a mirror for inspection or things like that. So uh, they try to overcome not having these things by the only means that are possible to them to try to uh, figure out how to treat their patients. And I haven't mentioned it yet, but they're trying to survive as well because they are suffering from the same type items. You know, they are starving. They are dealing with these other diseases themselves. Tell us about the physical condition of the prisoners in the camps. What are they suffering from? And is this different from what they were suffering from maybe before or right after surrender? The prisoners of war are uh, are, are definitely going to have more medical issues. Uh, they are still going to suffer some of these primary items that they uh, have started on the uh, the unfortunate road towards with uh, malaria and uh, malnourishment. But uh, they are, in some cases, if they are healthy enough, if they are able to, they are put on labor details and work details, and uh, often are overworked. So uh, exertion from being on those work details, all manner of malnourishment and vitamin deficiencies because of the food quality or lack thereof, because of uh, the minuscule portions. And also with poor sanitation there are, and, and, and unclean water, there are diseases that are endemic to the area that uh, if your body's resistance is broken down, that you're going to be more uh, susceptible to. I mentioned malaria. Uh, there's dengue fever, which is also spread by mosquitoes, which leads to other diseases. Again, if you're broken down, beriberi, which is a, a vitamin B1 deficiency and uh, can cause like swelling of your feet and other body parts, which and then you don't want to get up, but you have to uh, go uh, if you're forced to uh, different uh, camp labor or even getting out of bed, uh, which would be a, a rack or mat. Pellagra, which is a vitamin uh, deficiency, which causes all kinds of other uh, sores and even uh, uh, brain issues. A lot of vitamins that they're missing uh, causes them to have eye-related disorders. 
because of the food and the water quality and, and also other sanitary practices. A lot of the prisoners suffer from internal parasites or external parasites like lice. Uh, and then uh, because water is at a premium, you're not able to wash properly and you have all these uh, uh, nutrient deficiencies. So you get lesions and ulcerated skin uh, and, and just minor illnesses become very serious uh, without the, the reinforcement of your body through these uh, different nutrients and things like that, as well as all kinds of fevers. Uh, groupings of people share diseases, you know, coughs and things like that, which become very serious. Dysentery is unfortunately a, a big part of their life and uh, life-threatening diarrhea because of uh, dehydration. So these are all problems. And these are just uh, uh, part of the portions. There are also the the physical aspects, the, the beatings and torture and executions by their guards, uh, but also mental torture as well. It's really an absolutely terrible situation. As the war continues, though, there are hell ships that then begin to transport many of the POWs out of the Philippines to be used as forced laborers in other Japanese-controlled areas. What are the conditions on these transports, and what role, if any, do medical personnel play? Oh, the conditions. Uh, hell ships are aptly named. Claustrophobic. Uh, they're placed in cargo holds, which, uh, from what I've studied, just uh, reeked of oil or diesel uh, for the smell and, and smothering conditions. Uh, there's little ventilation, extreme crowding. I've, I've read that in some cases the prisoners were not able to sit down because they're packed so tightly. And so the heat from being in one of these tropical areas, when you're in a metal ship, uh, heat reflects off the ocean into the ship. The ship has uh, engines which are in the lower part of the vehicle where the prisoners are going to be. So that all comes into play, making it a very hot place. One or two buckets to serve as a latrine for hundreds of people. Uh, so you can imagine that uh, where you're standing or trying to stand or sit is uh, very fetid and disgusting. Uh, little or no food or water provided for the uh, voyage. And uh, as the ship moved to uh, out of tropical waters, say around the Philippines, north to either Japan or Korea, it gets cooler. And it's uh, freezing conditions for those POWs who have no extra clothes or no fat reserves. So then they get to battle the cold. Uh, additionally, those ships are subject to attack by Allied forces, and uh, both through aircraft and submarines, so uh, they have that danger uh, to worry about. So what would a medical person be doing uh, on a hell ship? Uh, I think after serving in the camps, their roles would be very limited on one of these ships because uh, everybody's packed in. They would probably try to help uh, their fellow prisoners, but uh, I would say without uh, tools, without medicine, uh, extremely little water and even space, I would say their role on the hell show would be really limited. Earlier, I mentioned that one third of the American military POWs captured in the Philippines die in captivity. Do we have an exact number of how many of them died before liberation? That is a hard one. Exact is a difficult number, but uh, I can say that the National Archives and Records website does have a way for you to search these people that were held in captivity. And uh, if you go through and you look at all of the all of the military and civilians that are connected with the Department of Defense around that time, or uh, War Department would be the the terminology. It would be eleven thousand three hundred twenty eight 
die under Japanese control. And I think if you look at military only, it would be 10,413. Those are the numbers I was able to find. There are different ways of looking at that, but exact is a hard one. But 10 and 11,000 number people are the numbers I come up with. Quite a lot. So we've mostly talked about men. The Army and the Navy also had women working in the Philippines as medical personnel when the war started. And we're going to talk about them in a future podcast. But can you tell us a little bit about their experience as POWs in the Philippines compared to what we've been discussing today? Yes. POW experience for women is different. To start off, there are a lot less women than other people in uniform in the Philippines, but uh, their service was definitely appreciated. And uh, so what are they doing? There are Army and Navy nurses, there are dietitians, there are physical therapists. And during the invasion, the uh, they're all serving in a capacity to help support treatment, whether it's in surgery, whether it is uh, helping patients within their special So they're all working and they're all facing the same dangers as well. There are different locations uh, where these service women are serving. And as an example, there are ones uh, serving on Guam that are sent directly to Japan as prisoners. There are Army and Navy nurses that are uh, captured and they are sent to Santo Thomas internment camp in Manila in the Philippines. And there's later separations where Navy nurses are at uh, Los Banos uh, in the Philippines. And they're, so they're at a different camp. I believe they are moved as well after that. The majority serve as prisoners in Santo Thomas and there are civilian male, female and uh, children uh, internees at the Santo, excuse me, Santo Thomas camp. And um, they are in a city, basically, but there's still limited food. They are still suffering from malaria, dengue fever, vitamin deficiencies. They're overcrowded and uh, they're having the captivity experience. I would say probably less on the beating side and torture, but they still are trying to make sure everybody survives. They're trying to keep spirits up. They're trying to make sure that uh, everybody can survive these diseases and survive captivity. As far as I know, I think they all did survive. Any final thoughts? Yes. I I don't know how some of these people survive, honestly. On a personal note, John Washington Kimsey uh, was my grandmother's cousin. Uh, He did survive. He passed away in 1997. He uh, was captured after the fall of Corregidor. And he survived the Philippines. And I think he was healthy enough that they decided he could be in one of their work camps. So he was shipped to Korea. And from Korea, he was put on a rail line up into Manchuria and went to Camp Poten uh, in Mukden. And this was a large camp that the Japanese had taken over to house. Uh, people that were going to work in one of their factories, which turns out was a converted uh, Ford factory. And also they were going to do agricultural work for the local folks and things like that. So that factory, I don't know if he worked in it, but uh, it had been converted to Japanese war material when they invaded. And uh, the people that were held in that camp were freed by first and OSST, three really brave folks parachuted in and uh, went to the camp commander and said, the war is over uh, and you guys lost. Can you imagine 
the courage for that. So the uh, Japanese uh, leadership, they, they radioed, they guessed it's true. So uh, they waited around for a few days and then a Russian unit shows up on the spot and uh, takes the Japanese folks uh, prisoner frees the allied prisoners that are held in that camp. And so the out-processing for uh, this relative of mine has uh, some Russian clerk's signature on it. Just an interesting tidbit. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's, it's a story worth hearing. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.